Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Michael, Dave Baxter, Haley Murray, JL, Bella Flame, Michael Fletcher, Jenna Swaggerty, Andrea Horvath, Jen Forever Your Creeper Moreland, Daniel Garraway, Kelly Hewitt, Dustin Beach, Alma, Twitchy Jim Tree, Amy Zamora, and Arrow. Thank you so much for your support. Our patrons get a lot more 13. There's extra stories every month, updates on the show, merch, and access to a Patreon-only Discord server where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. And if you don't like hearing all the ads on the show, there's a $1 ad-free tier. Learn more at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. Thanks again to all of our patrons who joined us for the live recording session that we did back in September. We had a blast, we had so much fun talking to you guys, and we can't wait to do it again. Well, it's October, and it's a Friday the 13th. I can't imagine a better episode day. Before we get started, you all have been hearing a lot of promos for other spooky shows on the feed and in our intros lately. We always want to minimize the intros and get to the story as fast as possible for you. But it's the one time a year when everyone else is paying attention to our little corner of the podcast world. And we like to share that spotlight with shows that we think you'd like. Podcasters, especially audio drama and audio fiction, we're a tight-knit group. A lot of us know each other, and we like to help each other out. So, thanks for bearing with us as we share these other great creators and stories with you. Speaking of getting right to it, this month's story is The Swallowing of Graves, written by Sarah Crockle Smith, and narrated by Brooke Jeanette, Mason Amadeus, and me, Ian Epperson. All right, here we go. Turn down the lights. Here comes the show. The trunk of my jeep slammed shut, startling me. I slipped the crumpled letter into my back pocket, then palmed my sweaty hands on my thighs as Nathan rounded the driver's side. His bright smile, here in the early dawn, it lifted my spirits. I pulled him into a tight hug, kissing his bearded cheek. You're all set. Got enough gas for the trip? Yep, filled it up last night. He drew back. I longed to trace my finger down his hawkish nose, to memorize the way his blue irises were freckled with the odd brown wedge, even knowing what he'd say to me next. I knew I'd never tire of it, and I wished it could last forever. I nodded, half listening, as he listed off supplies. You've got cash, snacks, water. I punched his shoulder and laughed. Don't worry about me. It's just a girl's night before the party. He held me, his arms around my lower back. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're safe. But besides, I don't want you coming back for something while I'm setting up. He winked, and tears threatened to betray me. I couldn't hide the dark cloud passing over my face. I started to speak, but my words caught in my throat. Nathan frowned and cradled my head to his chest. Is this about your mother? I took in a shaky breath. 
I was tormented with joyful memories. Our first date, our trip to Italy, our wedding. The timeline spread before me and hot tears spilled at the children we might never have. The petty fights we wouldn't squabble over. The retirements and grandchildren that might never come. My heart felt like a stone thrown into a pond, sinking until it hit the bottom. He squeezed me close. Hey, you don't have to torture yourself like this. It's, it's tragic how young she died, but, but that doesn't mean... How do you know what it means or doesn't mean? I drew back from him and stalked to the front of the jeep. He came around to stand next to me, putting his hands out. I knew he meant it in peace, but it only made me more anxious. You're right, I, I don't know, but you, you can't put your happiness on hold because of it. I bit my lip and I leaned against the vehicle's hood. Silence drifted on the still morning air. Dew clung to the grass and shimmered in the rising sun. I pulled my cardigan closed against the autumn chill, then wiped the tears from my eyes and patted the hood next to me. He sat by my side and I placed a hand on his thigh but I kept my eyes on the horizon. I love you. You know that. We say it all the time, but I need you to know it's not some flippant autopilot statement. I really do. I kept something from you. I'm not even sure why, but I can't spend these last, I mean, these next few days lying to you. He opened his mouth but stopped as I withdrew the letter from my pocket and pressed it into his palm. I'm not going to meet the girls. I pointed to the Brennan and Sons logo at the top of the paper. There's an old family friend I didn't know about. She passed away recently. The lawyers say there's some of my family's mementos. Apparently, she insisted it be left to the nearest family member to my mother. It actually said... The nearest female family member. The family curse. A shiver trickled down my spine. Nathan, she died at 30 years old. On her birthday. In two days, I'll turn 30. I have to go. You don't have to do anything. You're never going to be able to move forward if you don't stop looking to the past. Maybe you're right, but... I can't shake the feeling that there's a shadow hanging over me. I'm going to go. If all I do is find some of her old things and say a proper goodbye, that'll have to be enough. I stood and headed to the driver's side door. Nathan caught my hand before I got behind the wheel. His eyes were wide, his jaw clenched. Digging into family history for answers doesn't bring closure. At least let me come with you. No, honey. Besides, you've got my birthday to prepare for. I'll see you in a couple of days. I kissed him before pulling out of the driveway. He stood in front of our home with his arms limp at his sides, as if he didn't know what to do with himself. I hated seeing him this way. My eyes stung with more tears, and I swallowed them back. I felt the time passing like grains of sand in a nearly empty hourglass, precious and few. The specter of my mother called to me, and I needed to tug at the thread before I became unraveled.
Though my family's hometown was only a half day's drive, I hadn't been able to bring myself to visit since my mother's death. Not that my father encouraged it. I had only been five years old when my mother Elena passed. I only had hazy memories with her. Baking pecan pie and hugs squeezed so tight we'd called them hold your breath hugs. My own memories were aided by the infrequent times my father would reminisce about her. Whenever I asked more about my mother, he would jerk as if out of a daze, and then his face would mold back into its usual stony expression. Pine trees rolled past the jeep's windows. The trees gave way to a small town on the edge of a wide lake. Ripples broke the surface of the water like molten fire under the high noon skies, not a cloud in sight. The water enticed me. On a whim, I steered toward a pull-off by the lake. I was a few miles out from the lawyer's office. I figured I could spare a couple of minutes to stretch my legs. Besides, the weather was so beautiful. Something about this place felt familiar. I smiled, closing my eyes to let the sunlight warm my eyelids as I imagined my family picnicking here by the waterside. I held my breath for as long as I could, just like I did at the bottom of the pool after a workout. I conjured up a smile from the daydream version of my father. I eased the Jeep back onto the road and followed the GPS to the offices of Brennan and Sons. The calm I'd found by the lake disappeared while I parked and stared at the small house that had been converted into law offices. A sign planted in front of the white picket fence told me that I was in the right place. I sent a quick text to Nathan to let him know I'd gotten there okay. And then I grabbed my purse and headed inside. Decorated in a modern nautical theme, the building included two enclosed offices with blinds. One of the doors was open. There was also a round conference table right in the lobby, two chairs, and a kitchenette. Through the open office door, I spotted a well-manicured man sitting behind his desk and leaning back in his chair while casually chatting on the phone. I guessed he was in his 30s. A small bell on the door chimed as I walked in, alerting him. He hopped up, still cradling the phone to his ear. Yeah, Will. Hey, uh, I gotta run. Client just walked in. Yep. Yep. Alright. Talk to you later. The man hung up and strode over to me with his hand out. Dan Brennan, what can I do for you? I shook his outstretched hand. He wore a navy button-down shirt and khakis. No tie. I hadn't considered how small the town really was. Perhaps, if I'd come back sooner, I might have been able to learn more about my mother. My family. Ma'am? Everything alright? Dan eyed our still-clasped hands. His brow was furrowed. I dropped my hand and looped a strand of hair behind my ear. Sorry, yes. Long drive to get here's all. He snapped his finger and pointed it at me. Oh, you're Marina Charles, aren't you? I nodded, but he was already rushing back into his office. I heard a grunt, 
followed shortly by Dan dragging a worn oak hope chest over to the conference table and setting it down on the thinly carpeted floor with a thud. This, <clears throat> this is for you. I'm sorry, where are my manners? How about I get you a cup of coffee? Do you have any tea? One tea, coming right up. I took a seat at the table. The hope chest was a lurking, silent third party between us. I fidgeted, rubbing on each of my fingernails one after the other. I leaned forward and lifted the meaty lock on the front of the chest, the only thing preventing it from spilling its secrets, if there were any secrets to be had. What did I expect it to reveal? It couldn't possibly tell me why my mother's heart stopped on her 30th birthday. Part of me never wanted to open it. Another part of me wanted to dive inside and sort through every last scrap. The clinking of a spoon in a porcelain teacup drew my attention. Dan handed me the tea, tiny swirls of steam curling up toward me. I smelled sweet spice and orange. All right, I hope herbal tea's okay. I put a little bit of honey in it, just like I like it. I hope that's okay. His sincerity and enthusiasm reminded me of an eager Labrador. Despite the gravity of my visit, it was nice to have that levity. I sipped the hot tea and wished I hadn't been so hasty in turning down Nathan's offer to join me. Dan dipped his head and took a seat. From his pocket, he produced an old silver key, about three inches long, looped with five interlocked branches. He placed it on the table in front of me. I noticed his knee was bouncing. He was waiting for me to open the chest. I cocked my head. Why did he care what was inside? I set down my tea. Dan, do you know why Miss Reed didn't reach out to me sooner? How did she even get this in the first place? He looked both ways, as if checking for eavesdroppers. Then, he scooted his chair closer to me and spoke in a quiet voice. Well, you have to understand, Miss Reed was in a terrible way toward the end. Her mind was going. I raised an eyebrow. I gather she was getting up there in years. That's very sad, but not out of the ordinary. Dan nodded. Well, sure, but I'm just telling you this because she was pretty spooked. She said that she saw things more clearly close to death than she ever had in life. That it was absolutely imperative you receive this chest as soon as possible. She was... she was worried. His eyes drifted to the floor, avoiding contact with mine. I wanted to shake him, but instead... I closed the key in my fist so hard I expected it would leave five little marks in my palm. I said his name, as if to prompt him to finish, and I struggled to keep my tone friendly between clenched teeth. He startled and stared up at me, an echo of the worry Miss Reed must have felt radiating from his dilated pupils. Well, Miss Charles, she was worried that you were in danger. Oh, but come on now. 
That's ridiculous. You're right here. You're completely fine. I don't know why I'm letting her get to me. Lines creased his forehead, and he scratched the back of his neck. I gave my best effort at an empathetic smile. Okay. That doesn't explain how she got the chest, though. Dan pointed at me. So, some of this I got from Miss Reed. Some of it from a little digging that I did on my own. Apparently, Miss Reed's grandmother and your great-great-grandmother worked together back in the 20s and 30s. They were telephone switchboard operators. Violet Charles was her name. He gestured to my wedding band. I guess the women in your family have a long history of keeping their mother's maiden name. I think that's pretty neat. I frowned, twisting my ring around my finger. I'd kept my mother's maiden name because it made me feel more connected to her. I guess I didn't realize it was a family tradition. Dan leaned forward, elbows to knees, becoming more animated as he relayed all the details. According to Miss Reed, her grandmother and Violet, they became close friends when they were working on the boards. Violet had been deserted by her husband after the stock market crash. It was a poor man's divorce, leaving Violet alone to fend for herself, her and her 10-year-old daughter. Miss Reed said that they were always trying to help Violet. You know, times were tough on everyone back then, though. But this is where the story gets strange. Miss Reed said that her grandmother would overhear Violet talking to somebody on the lines. Somebody who wasn't there. Violet talked about making a deal for a better future, better than the spinsterhood and drowning death that she faced back then. Mrs. Reed's grandmother thought that Violet was losing her grip on reality. They actually had a big argument over it. She planned to make it up to Violet because she had to work on her birthday. I shot to attention when I heard that word. I'm sorry, did you say her birthday? Oh yeah, Miss Reed's grandmother, she baked a cake and brought it to Violet, even braved a nasty thunderstorm to get there. I'll tell you what, you can't make this up, but lightning? It struck the building, traveled all through the equipment, and then it electrocuted Violet, knocked her down instantly. And it was Miss Reed's grandmother who found her. I sat back in my chair, my mouth hanging open. I reached for my tea, and my hand trembled as I brought the cooled liquid to my lips. After choking back a couple of sips, I kneeled in front of the hope chest. Dan put a hand to his heart. I'm so sorry, Miss Charles. You'll have to forgive me. I got so wrapped up telling that story that I... I guess I just forgot myself. It must be difficult to hear that about a family member. I sat back on my heels, key in hand, and eyes on the lock. It's just, I had no idea. He probably thought it was a minor morbid detail, but the word birthday buzzed in my ears. I imagined that lightning strike reverberating across generations. It had to be a coincidence. I can see why Miss Reed's grandmother locked up Violet's things and didn't want to look back. I slipped the key into the lock while Dan chattered on. So, since Violet didn't have any next of kin, her things went to Miss Reed's family. They even took care of her daughter for some time. That was uh, Gladys, 
but it's my understanding that she moved out as soon as she was old enough, met a young man. I fidgeted with the lock until it clicked. I unhooked it and opened the lid. It whined under years of disuse and neglect. Dust snaked upward from the disturbance, causing both of us to cough. The contents of the chest smelled of old earth, musty and stale, with a hint of powdery perfume. When I recovered, my shoulder tingled with the irritating proximity of Dan. I gave him a look. The chest seemed to mostly contain time-worn clothing, but on top of the pile, there was a framed photograph. In my hands, the stained bronze frame held an image beneath dusty glass. I rubbed my shirt across it to reveal a woman with short-cropped hair, cupid bow lips, wearing a long, tasseled necklace with a black opal centerpiece. Her smile was wry, and her eyes burned like the coals of a dying fire. As chilling as the eyes were, that wasn't what made my heart knock into my chest or my skin go feverish. Wow, that must be Violet. He did a double take from the picture to me. He looked like he desperately wanted to grab the frame and hold it side by side with my face. I tell you, that's some family likeness. She could be your twin. I pawed at the collar of my shirt. The more I learned about Violet, the less I wanted to know. My cheeks flushed and my mouth went dry. I tried to take another drink of my tea, but I fumbled the saucer and spilled it onto the photo's glass. I froze, watching the liquid seep under the frame and worm its way toward Violet. When I finally broke from my trance, I wiped up what I could, but the photo was ruined. A dark stain hovered to the left of Violet's shoulder. I bit my lip, then I tossed the photograph into the chest and slammed it shut. I slipped my purse over my arm and grabbed the chest handle to drag it outside. This was enough to process in one day, and I didn't need Dan gobbling up every detail of my family's private life. He helped me get the chest to my car. I muttered a quick thank you, then hopped into the vehicle before Dan could say much more. As I pulled out of the parking lot, I stopped at the intersection with the main road. I avoided looking into the rearview mirror for fear of catching sight of the hope chest behind me, its presence making my Jeep feel like a hearse. A whole woman's life, my great-great-grandmother's, crammed into a box, locked away and forgotten. Until now. What had I awakened? It only brought more questions and fears. Not less. Maybe Nathan was right about digging into family history. What good did it do? I looked to the right, down the way I'd come, past the lake and the evergreens, where the sun poked through in patches. Then I looked to the left, toward crumbling Victorians and the town center. Ashen clouds churned overhead. The wind howled. A whistling scream mirrored in my heart. I turned left toward the oncoming storm.
The light glowed from my phone. Hunched over it, I sat on the crumpled, stiff linen sheets of the motel bed. I could hardly believe my eyes. I didn't want to believe them. Two days of poring over every scrap, every photo, every stray thread in that damned hope chest, and I was no closer to understanding. The internet had been no help, just a rehash of everything Dan had told me. Violet had died from electrocution when lightning struck the telephone operator's building. The only additional information I'd found on it was how incredibly unusual that was. Those buildings in particular were well insulated against just such an occurrence. The local library had been closed for the weekend. I couldn't track down anyone living who might know anything. The thought of talking to Dan again made my stomach churn. He was polite enough, but I could tell that it satisfied some macabre fascination in him. Besides, it wasn't likely that he had anything else that I didn't already know. My phone's clock ticked away another minute. I flinched. Both my mother and great-great-grandmother died on their 30th birthdays. So what? In the entire history of existence, this can't be the first time that's happened. It's probably happened quite a few times. In fact, it was a statistical likelihood that it would happen to somebody. It just happened to be me. It didn't mean anything, did it? I wrinkled my nose. The smell of old pizza and cigarettes lingered in the motel's upholstery. I didn't mind. After two days, it was almost comforting. It was something else that bothered me. That powdery perfume emanating from the chest. Had it grown stronger the longer it was opened? I shook my head and stood up. This was madness. It was time to leave this town in the past, for good. The buzzing in my hand startled me. When I caught my breath, I looked at the screen. Nathan was calling. He had been calling for the past two days. I walked to the window, pushing back the curtain. My jeep sat dormant in front of my room. Hey. Marina, where the hell have you been? I've been worried sick. The distress in his voice stabbed me in the gut. I'm so sorry. It's taken me longer than I thought to get everything settled here. I guess I didn't realize how focused I was. Something about talking to Nathan set me into motion. I began slowly packing up my stray items as we talked. Well, don't do that again, please. I couldn't sleep. I almost drove up there yesterday. Do you think you're going to make it home in time for your party? Should I push it back? I mean, we could always do something smaller, just, just you and I to celebrate. I sank down into the overstuffed motel chair. No, no. I'll be there. I'm just going to see if I can find my mother's headstone in the cemetery. Say goodbye on my way out of town. Okay. Text me as soon as you're on your way. I miss you. I miss you too. I'll see you soon. I hung up. The screen mocked me. Today 
was my 30th birthday. The motel clerk had pointed me toward the only cemetery in the small town. Despite my efforts to get going at a decent time, after packing, cleaning up, and ordering breakfast, it was already rapidly closing on midday. The autumn sun was lively. The sky was robin's egg blue. The storm from two days prior had cleared, paving the way for lovely weather. I eased my jeep through the cemetery's archway. Moss Creek Cemetery, further inland, on the other side of the town from the lake. At first, I wasn't sure I was in the right place. No other visitors were there, which probably wasn't that unusual. But I didn't see any gravestones. There was the odd monument here and there, a shed in the back corner of the grassy area, a couple of potted flowers, and a few oak trees. But there were no rows of headstones. The graveled road appeared to cut a wide circle through the graveyard. I pulled aside and parked. When I stepped out, the green of the grass was so vivid against the bright blue day, it stunned me. If this was where my mother was buried, it wasn't the worst place one could find eternal rest. Maybe I'd spent too much time cooped up in that motel room with nothing but my own thoughts and a morbid past. But I even had the fleeting thought that I could see myself making this a yearly ritual. Visiting my mother on her birthday. Leaving flowers. A kind of pleasant symmetry. Shutting the Jeep's door, I walked out onto the grass. It was then that I realized all of the headstones were flat to the earth. They'd been difficult to see until I was right on top of them their granite faces glittering from beneath the grass. I walked along the uneven rows, reading dates and names that I didn't recognize. My heels sunk into the ground as I moved through the grass, each step careful and uncertain as the supple earth gave way under my footfalls. I fell into a habit of stooping down at each stone and tearing back the sod that covered the letters. The cemetery wasn't all that big, but I hadn't been able to locate my mother after an hour. I spotted a lane where I expected headstones to be, but I didn't see any. It led up to a gnarled oak tree. The ground was soft, and the headstones were nearly consumed by it. I wondered if no one had been to visit my mother in years. Had the earth reclaimed the only mark of her memory? Getting an idea, I marched over to the shed. No lock. It was a small town, after all. I found a sharp trowel and returned to the area I suspected might contain more stones. Casting a glance over my shoulder, satisfied I was still alone, I tapped the tip of the trowel through the sod. A dull thunk confirmed my theory. Bracing my palm next to it, I carved the grass and soil off in clumps, mindful not to scratch the granite. My shoulders slumped. This wasn't a name I recognized. I repeated this method two more times. Nothing. I sat back on the grass, 
resting my arms on bent knees. I pulled my phone out and I sighed. If I left now, I'd make it home for the party on time. The date mocked me, along with a dozen missed messages and notifications wishing me a happy birthday. I lifted the trowel and pointed it to the next spot. Just one more, and I'll go. As the earth parted, I grabbed two handfuls of sod and yanked. I laughed with both joy and relief. Elena Charles, 1966 to 1996, beloved wife and mother. Kneeling by the stone, I pressed my hand to it, closed my eyes, and let a cascade of silent tears fall. My body shook with sobs. I wrapped my arms around myself, mourning the years of missed hugs as a little girl. It's my birthday, Mama. I miss you. After a moment, I rose to my feet and I turned toward the Jeep. The wind picked up sharply. It screamed like a banshee, the way it had before that storm a couple of days ago. I wondered if another was on its way. A thought stopped me in my tracks. I looked over my shoulder. What if there were more? They'd be here, wouldn't they? And it wouldn't take much longer. Not really. It'd be nice to find them if I could. I could visit them, too. They might be strangers, but they were still family. I uncovered the next grave. Bonnie Charles, 1944 to 1974. Always in our hearts. I couldn't believe it. My grandmother, she'd also died at 30 years old. I scrambled over to the spot beside Bonnie. I didn't bother making the edges pretty this time. I clamped my hand over my mouth. Gladys Charles, a life of deeds, not of years. 1920 to 1950. My great-grandmother, also dead at 30. My blood drummed in my ears and adrenaline coursed through my veins. I stabbed the trowel into the ground at the base of the oak tree, frantic energy hoping to undo the truth of what I'd seen. I knew what the last headstone would bring, and still, I tore away roots and soil until my hands were covered in a mess of dirt and blood. Violet. Violet seemed to be the source of it all, the start of some horrific legacy, cutting the lives of the Charles women short, cutting them down in their prime. What I meant to accomplish by finding Violet, I didn't know. At least I could yell at her headstone and unburden myself of this frustration and fear. At last, the marbled stone revealed itself, deeper within the ground than any other stone, nestled at the base of the stooped oak tree. Sunlight streamed through the branches, 
The leaves golden with the turning of the season. Violet Charles, 1901 to 1931. I leaned back on my heels. The wind blew through my hair, taking with it the heat of my anger. Yes, it was a fact. Four generations before me happened to die when they were 30 years old. But I was letting my thoughts run away with it. How could I let myself believe that I was marked for death? The wind died. The stillness of the graveyard made me feel too present, too big for my own skin. The grass beneath my knees was like a pillow, cushioning me. It tickled my ankles, and it wrapped around my toes. Silence rang like a bell in my ears. I jumped. It was my phone. I expected it to be Nathan, but it was a local number. Hello? Happy birthday! I straightened, grasping the trowel in my other hand. Who is this? Mothers and daughters in the ground as one. By lightning chained, my life's just begun. Five generations past, my future's won. Through graveyard's grass, I trade one for one. My phone clicked. The call ended. I braced myself to stand, unsure of what had just happened. All I knew was that I wanted to put as much distance as possible between the Charles women and myself. I went to stand, but when I tried to lift my hand, it wouldn't budge. I jerked my arm. It was stuck on something. Grass curled around my wrists, tightening like a vice, tugging me closer to the ground. My knees sank, my feet all but inhaled by the soil. My calves plunged into the grass. Tendrils snaked up my forearms, plating over them with such force that my chin hit the edge of violet stone. Hot iron filled my mouth. Blood. I bowed my back, arched my neck, doing everything I could think of to pull from the roots. The more I tried to free myself, the more the ground devoured me. I held steady to the phone and the trowel, the latter of which I jammed into the dirt in a last-ditch effort to keep my head above ground. With my thumb, I navigated the phone's screen to dial Nathan, to let him or anyone know where I was. My eyes widened, and I whined like a trapped animal when blades of grass sliced my thumb, then curled around my hand, drawing it down into the earth. Graveyard dirt and roots shoved my shoulders like heavy hands of generations past. I took one last deep breath before being swallowed underneath.
I could no longer feel the warmth of the sun. I was underground, in my great-grandmother's grave. The roots urged me further down against my will. I held my lips tight, fearful of those sinewy extensions of grass. What if they wormed past my teeth, curled around my tongue? Something brushed against my nose. The air in my lungs burned with the instinct to scream. But if I did, I'd lose the only thing I had left keeping me alive, keeping me from suffocating. I held still, my mind racing. How could I possibly free myself? The weight of the earth on my back was crushing. I froze as I felt smooth, dense instruments wrap around me. As it gripped me, I realized what it was. Bones. The skeleton of Violet Charles held me in a ghastly embrace. Even as I held my mouth closed with all my might, I screamed wordlessly and struggled against Violet's grasp. My skin stung wherever she touched me. I cringed as I felt thickness grow around the lean bones. Muscle and tissue fleshing out the dead woman's body. As Violet became whole, I weakened. Energy fled from me until I was so drained that I felt paralyzed. Lips grazed my cheek. I envisioned them. Cupid's bow wryly upturned, and bile rose in the back of my throat. The voice I'd heard earlier on the phone tinkled clearly as a glass bell in my ears. Your life for mine. I saw everything. Violet had lain in wait for me for 90 years. The deal she made with the entity she'd spoken to while operating telephones. It had killed her for a purpose. It demanded five generations of Charles women, sacrificed in its name, to give Violet the life she wanted. From the grave, Violet had called each of her descendants on their birthday, and once buried, she absorbed their energy. But I was the fifth in line. Violet had a special plan for me. My life was her reward. I would take her place in death, and Violet would take my place in life. This knowledge came in a flash while Violet traded places with me, laying me to rest at the bottom of her grave. As I faced my fate, I felt Violet leave me. Tears streamed down my cheeks. The soil drank them. My life stolen. I had dreamed, but never hoped, for a future past my thirty years. And now, I would never see one. I conjured visions of Nathan, of when we were happy. Dizziness set over me, a lack of oxygen. Precious seconds passed, 
Panic seared my heart. Dirt pressed into my nostrils. Blinded me. Numbed me. The urge to inhale would soon become a command I could no longer refuse. Soil would pour into my mouth, my lungs, and... A pulse broke through the numbness in my palm. Confusion. Then it came again. Then again. Regular intervals. I was still clinging to my phone. It was ringing. My other senses were dulled by the grave. But there was one I'd never known I possessed. It flickered to life. Each vibration sent tiny shockwaves through me. The power flowed, traveled through my skin, prickled my fingertips. With my heart, not my eyes, I saw them. Linked to me, my great-grandmother, grandmother, and mother. Gladys, Bonnie, and Elena. They pooled together what little was left of themselves and poured it into me. In waves of lightning, it rushed to me. The will to live. The rage to survive. The hope for the future. The force of it wrapped around my chest like a hold-your-breath hug. I swam upward, clawing the dirt, ripping the roots. My chest burned. I had no choice. I must make it out before I took a breath. Nearing the surface, I sensed something was wrong. The grass had knitted itself into an impenetrable pattern above me. I smashed my fists against it. In my thrashing, I winced as my forearm hit something sharp. The trowel. With the trowel's head, I sliced through the blades of grass and forced my hand through the surface. Tearing myself from the earth, I fell gasping onto the ground. <gasps> I fought the light of the sun to see my surroundings. With the help of the oak tree, I braced myself. Moss Creek Cemetery stood as silent as it had been before I'd been torn from its grounds. Despite the strength of the sun, clouds gathered nearby. The storm was still coming. Violet's fury-filled eyes bore into me as she stood by Gladys's headstone. To see my great-grandmother, my own face a carbon copy of hers, twisted in such anger, it made the hair on my neck prickle. Violet stalked toward me, hands balled into fists, black opal necklace swinging wildly. Strands of Violet's hair stood on end as if electrically charged. As she moved, the storm clouds moved with her. How 
dare you? I gave up everything for this. My life. My daughter's life. I waved the trowel in front of me. Get back! This is my life! Violet stopped. She put a hand to her heart in mock amusement. Oh, it's your life? You weren't even living it. As Violet advanced upon me, I backed against the tree. I held the point of the trowel at Violet's neck. It's mine! My chest tight, still recovering from the lack of air. I felt the last wisps of power my family had given me float away on the rising wind. They'd helped me out of the grave, but it was up to me to take my life back from Violet. Weakness overcame my knees. My hands trembled. Sweat greased my grip on the trowel. I dropped it as Violet pressed forward and crouched at the base of the oak. Unwilling to look up, I felt Violet's presence looming large over me. You're pathetic. The sky above sprinkled rain and crackled with electricity. How could I have ever birthed daughters and daughters of daughters so weak? It's beyond me. My great-grandmother's perfume wafted. I shook, unable to control the fear. None of you embraced life like it's meant to be lived. Oh, to live in the times that you do and to just dash it away like it's nothing. Violet grabbed my chin, forced me to look her in the eyes. Eyes that burned like hell's fire. Your mother didn't deserve to live, and neither do you. The clouds came on fast, and the wind followed. Flashes of blue lightning filled the sky. I gritted my teeth. As the wind rushed through my hair, it whispered in my ears. My eyes widened. I dug my fingers into the grass and words spilled forth from my lips. Mothers to daughters, through them love travels. By lightning broken, your pact unravels. Five generations past, your curse is done. Through graveyards grass, my life's just begun. Violet's eyes narrowed in disbelief, her pupils huge, like two black pools of stars. Before she could open her mouth, lightning descended, a thick bolt from the sky to strike the black opal around her neck. As the pendant cracked open, the lightning traveled from Violet to me. Life flooded back into me. My heartbeat came strong. My muscles sang with potential. My skin hummed electric. As I inhaled the truest breath of air I'd ever taken in my life, I watched the shriveled skeleton of Violet crumple to the ground.
The graveyard grass curled around Violet's pitiful figure. It worked slowly but relentlessly, returning her to the earth where she belonged. The winds carried away the storm clouds, revealing the endless blue sky. Warm rays touched my cheeks like an old friend. Looking down, I saw the oak tree's roots cover Violet's headstone. In a somber procession, I visited Gladys's grave, and then my grandmother Bonnie's, bestowing each with a thankful kiss, from lips to fingertips to stone. At last, I kneeled before Elena's grave. The grass neatly framed the granite. Thank you, Mama. A comforting wind pressed around me, a loving embrace, a hold-your-breath hug. I smiled. From the grass, I retrieved my phone and brushed the dirt off of it. I rose, walking toward the Jeep, and texted Nathan. I'm coming home. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was The Swallowing of Graves, written by Sarah Crockle Smith, narrated by Brooke Jeanette, and featuring Mason Amadeus and me, Ian Epperson. Music, editing, and sound design by Caleb Ritchie. Assistance from Bridget Freeman, formerly Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Jackie Kay, Delta Tango, Chantel Payne, Nick, Emily Douglas, Stephanie Klinger, and Jay Gar. Thank you so much for your support. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about joining us on Patreon. Check us out on social media. You can find us at Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under Pod13, and you can join our Facebook group at 13 Podcast. Just look for the logo. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You'll find submission guidelines and other info on our website, 13podcast.com. Bridget Freeman will connect your call shortly. Please stay on the line. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month. <laughs>